0: Woody. I'm here with Jim McDaniel and we're at the McDaniel family home. It's September 17th, 2015. And Jim, I'm going to go with a different first question for you given your family history. I would love to know how your family came to be in this area and, and sort of where it all began here. Would you mind telling us that story?
1: My family history begins <clears throat> in two places. Uh, in Dundee area, which Uh, The Shucks were the first settlers here in Dundee, and that was on my mother's side. Mm -hmm. And they go back seven generations, or seven or eight. I'm not sure how many. But uh, anyway, we have a lot of distant cousins around here. And on my father's side, uh, they came to Oregon in 1844 and settled in the Rickryall area. And we have uh, a lot of knowledge of that, including the family Bible. So that's our original background. Mm
0: -hmm. And I believe I know in speaking with Donna Jean, there's quite the McMinnville College, Linville College connection. Yes. I know we'll get into that in a different interview. But my my next question for you, if you're okay to move on from the family history, is how did you go from the family business into the grape growing business?
1: I'm going to start back in early time. Okay. And that is when I was in high school, I surreptitiously made wine from uh, raisins. It makes a nice frothy wine, and it doesn't take very long in a warm spot. And then I made beer, my friends and I made beer in an outhouse, uh, that is an outbuilding um, on our family farm. And then when I was Graduated from the University of Oregon in 1952. I was stationed uh, in the San Francisco area and more specifically in the Livermore Valley where there were several wineries even at that time uh, uh, Bente and uh, Con Cannon among others. So I took the opportunity to taste the wines and enjoyed them a lot So when I came back, I uh, continued to buy a wine wherever it was available, which was not very often. Most stores didn't carry anything except, um, um, well, we called it Dago Red. It was that wino stuff. <laughs> so uh, anyway, I, I uh, continued in that subject, and that's what led me to then consider getting into the grape growing and the wine production business. And... Um, Shall I start about David Lett at this point, then?
0: Whatever, Wherever you want to go, I will follow.
1: Okay. Well, in the spring or early summer of 1970, uh, Lett was preparing to make some wine, at least he was hoping to. He had grapes coming on, and he wanted a place to make the wine. So he went to Tom Gunnis, who was a loan officer at the First National Bank in McMinnville, and said that he wanted to uh, get a loan to put up a building for for winemaking. And uh, Tom said, well... So he called Tom, called me on the telephone, and he said, I've got some crazy guy here that wants to make wine in Oregon. And so he said, let's... uh, Let's get together for lunch at the Blue Moon Tavern in McMinnville, and um, listen to what Led has to say. So we did that. We had a good time, and of course, Led knew what he was doing. I was no was no uh, factor in that. So, uh, all- <clears throat> I mentioned about Seventh and Alpine and Tenth and Alpine, our office, in which uh, was located there. And uh, that location began as a business in 1929 when my father bought what was called the old Halk Building at that time. And he became uh, a part of that area and was one of the original influential businessmen in McMinnville at that time. And uh, we continued that business until 1985 when I retired and my brother a little bit later. So, anyway, our office for that uh, business was located at 7th and Alpine, and um, we bought a building later on for packing eggs. I got the wild idea that I was going to get into the egg production business, which didn't work out very well. But, anyway, we did have that building open mm-hmm. and offered it to let for, I think, 40 or $50, maybe $60 a month. Okay. And uh, my brother didn't like that very well.
0: Why is that?
1: He, uh, he thought it was a pretty foolish thing to do. Uh, well, we weren't getting anything out of it anyway, so what's the difference?
0: Mm-hmm. Foolish because why wine? That's right. Uh.
1: And that brings up another subject. And when I told him, that is my brother, why that building uh, was needed and what was going to happen there, he said, make wine. Who the hell's going to buy wine in this area uh, except the winos? <laughs> I said, well, you'll see. Uh-huh. And there's a side issue on that. Yesterday, when I was in McMinnville talking about the granary district, I went into the old office that we had later on, which had been formerly the buchanan Sellers office, which we owned eventually. And uh, that's owned by uh, Rob Stewart. Our Stewart Company. Mm. And lo and behold, all over the floors were stacks of wine cases and everything paraphernalia having to do with winemaking. So that was the final answer. Who the hell's going to have anything to do with wine in McMinnville or the state of Oregon or Washington, mm. for that matter? So I thought that was rather ironic and maybe even appropriate. <laughs> so anyway, having to do with Lent. Since I uh, uh, took part in making uh, the first wine, I wasn't really heavily into it, but I did. I, I um, turned the screw press like that.
2: And
1: Dave said, don't do too that hard. That makes bad wine. You, you, I think you get too much phenol into the, uh, into the must there. And uh, then one Sunday we had friends to dinner at our house. And David called and said, I need some help. I have some barrels in a railroad car, which was just a few blocks down from his winery winery there. Mm -hmm. And you have a lift truck we can use to get those out of there? And I said, yes. So my friend Joe and I got the lift truck, and we went over there, and we helped him get the barrels. And
2: Steve and
1: Mike. And what?
2: And Steve and Mike. You drafted your kids.
1: Oh, they did, too? I didn't remember that. Mm-hmm. Steve was Joe's son, and Mike was our son. So <clears throat> we, we did have a hand in the whole situation there on a minor scale. Mm-hmm. So I got the bug. I had to have a vineyard. And I started looking around uh, soon after that. And uh, it, of course, had to be the Dundee Hills.
0: Why do you say that? Pardon? Why, why of course, the Dundee Hills?
1: Well, because that's where David Lett was. Ah. And uh, no other place would do. Hmm. Obviously, there were many other places available. Land prices weren't too high. Uh, and when I found some land, uh, after much searching, uh, we paid. I think it was a thousand an acre. It had been, formerly that land had formerly been platted as residential areas in the Dundee Hills in the 1890s. Dundee Orchard Homes Number One and Two were the official plat names. So uh, <clears throat> I'm going to back up a little bit here and discuss the search for the. Vineyard. One of the first things we did was to, uh, I just walked around in the hills and I talked to a man named John Witter who owned much land there in the south end of the Dundee Hills and he wanted to start selling it off. And I believe Witter's Hill uh, winery is, is his family. And so he said, well, I've got this nice piece of ground right over here and looking out over the south, and we went over there. And uh, unfortunately, driving up to that site, it was like going through a a slumlord area because it was a lot of old uh, RVs and trailer houses, uh, people camping out there, and it was not a pleasant place. And secondly, it was in the Dayton School District, and uh, Donna Jean didn't want to have anything to do with the Dayton School District because we had children in school. Not that it, it isn't a good school, but she felt that we could do better somewhere else. And so I started looking around at other places, uh, including uh, right next to where the uh, uh, Let Vineyard is now which is now the so-called Blosser uh, location. And I, I kicked myself in the rear end for not getting that because it's a good location. And a later time, I walked around through the hills here one day, and I began to get sort of tired and hungry. And I was over by where the marsh place is now.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I stopped and I saw Lois Marsh there, and she said, "Uh, well, have you had any lunch? And I said, no, and I'm hungry as hell. And she cooked a hamburger for me. And that was one of the the kindest things I can remember was Lois Marsh uh, saving the day. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so eventually, then we came one day to Dundee at 9th Street. And that little building there, which has been used a variety of things, it was a barbershop shop at one time, and so on. At that time, it was a real estate office uh, owned and operated by a man named Kenny Gum. And listed in that place for sale was land in the Dundee Hills here, up Ninth Street, Warden Hill Road. And um, we expressed interest, and so Gum called. Uh, Jim Marsh, she, he said, well, we've got a prospective client here. You want to come down and get him and show him around? And then Jim said, oh, why the hell, what are you doing here? Why don't you do it? Well, uh, Jim came down anyway.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And he showed us some land which belonged to Jim's mother-in-law, Mrs. Hanson. She owned quite a few pieces around there for some reason. Maybe she was just speculating. Uh, on land there. And eventually, uh, Vivian and Arthur Weber bought the site that I liked the best. And then um, later on, we also bought 10 acres along Warden Hill from uh, Mrs. Hansen, too. So anyway, we didn't do anything right then, and I don't remember exactly why. So I continued to look, and uh, eventually, through the real estate office of— It was in Newburgh at the time, uh, out east of town there. Uh, Walt, well, I can't remember the name of the realtors, but anyway. They had some listings for these Dundee Orchard Homes locations, which there were quite a few, very many. And they came about because the owner of that, The Allen Fruit Company had planned on making those home sites according to the original platting. And however, they weren't able to make it go, and they were bankrupt. And I think it eventually became uh, ownership of the standard investment. I think I saw those signs there. But those plattings were all available. And actually, there were corner stakes in each location for each piece. And I found some of those stakes eventually, little white stakes about so high, down in the woods. So, um, Reset, yeah. Walt and Rich Reset were two of the realtors. So they took me up there and showed me this one particular spot that I thought looked good, which was on the the, uh, east end of the hills here. So I walked out there from the road, the county road, walked east, and then looked out over the hills, and I could see Mount Hood and all over the place. And I thought, well, this is the place. Mm -hmm. I've looked long enough. So um, we bought it. And uh, my dad helped me uh, buy it through a loan. And also, in order to finance it fully, I sold my Red 1960 to 1969 uh, Mercedes uh, 280 SL, which I wish I had now because it, was, <laughs> it would be a couple hundred thousand. I've seen it listed in the in the internet recently.
0: Oh, very sad. Yes, but probably proves how much he really believed. That's right. Yeah, in your vision. Yeah.
1: Well, those are all milestones along the way there. But strong remembrances. The first thing we did then was to do some clearing. We got a man who was a capable logger because there were some big trees down below the lower part of the lot. And incidentally, before we did that logging and clearing, there was a herd of elk living around in there but they disappeared the original upper part of that property uh, had been a prune orchard in which had blown out in the 1962 it was a 60 a 62 columbus day storm mm-hmm. so there were a lot of old prune trees around there and we pushed them down into the woods to get, them to get the lot clear mm-hmm. and and uh, then developed a plan for planting the vineyard. And also, the first thing we had to do, of course, was to dig a, uh, dig a well, which we did. In fact, uh, uh, Walt Reset was the one that told me when we hit hit water. He saw me somewhere in McMinnville, and he said, well, you've got water. It's so many feet. I don't remember what.
2: 600.
1: Was it 600? And this has proved out to be a very successful source of water. and. Uh, Don Olson, who now has that place, has used that uh, uh, in various ways, including hoping to bottle water from it. I don't know whether he ever did or not, but it was his plan, which irritated the neighbors. So anyway, we had a well. The next thing was to get some vines. Well, uh, where? Mm
2: -hmm.
1: How much? Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And this was about um, 72, I think. So I got cuttings from Let for Chardonnay, and eventually uh, I had those uh, uh, propagated by my uncle who had access to a greenhouse in Hillsboro. And he put them in the hotbeds there and sprouted them. And uh, then they were eventually ready. And we have pictures of those vines in our daughter Carrie's book here you might want to look at later. Okay. So uh, we started making plans uh, of just how to go about doing this. So I, I called uh, David Lett and I said, now Dave, how the hell am I supposed to plant this vineyard? And he said, for $100, I'll draw a map for you and what to do and how to do it. $100?
0: <laughs> okay.
1: so he did okay. he wrote it all out and then he said at the bottom when you get all this done Bacchus will smile oh. and I wish I still had that letter yeah. because it would have been a, 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 a real relic mm-hmm. from the past and uh, how to plant a vineyard so we eventually uh, set about doing it And uh, I bought a cable with a plastic-covered cable to run the lines down there. Mm -hmm. And Don and Jean uh, did me the favor of indicating where each plant would go on that cable. It was supposed to be um, six feet apart. The vines were going to be six feet apart. Mm -hmm. And this was in contrast to the uh, planting methods being used in California at that time, which was 9 by 12 in distance. But obviously that was not Oregon. And of course, as you know, it has even gotten quite narrow now. I don't remember, 6 by 6 or—I don't know, it's very very close. And so Donna Jean made that cable. <laughs> as it turned out, it wasn't quite right, as she could tell you, tell you what she did there.
0: Make sure to ask her when she's up next. Yeah. She. Uh, did you enlist the children to help plant as well, friends and family? How did you get the workforce to put a vineyard in?
1: Well, we did the best we could, and I'll explain then.
0: Okay.
1: We bought a shovel. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> a spade.
0: Tactical.
1: And And. Uh, We used the spade to dig all the holes for the first vineyard. It was in March, and there was enough soil in the ground, enough moisture in the ground that we could do that. Mm -hmm. And one of the people that helped me was a man named Frank Parks, who was studying for his Ph.D. at the University of Idaho, I think. And he wanted some exercise. He got it, too, because we, we worked the hell out of it. But he liked it. And incidentally, with Frank, he had documents and description of what was happening in Idaho at that time to start a winery industry. Oh, wow. And he gave those to me, and uh, I later gave it away, unfortunately, to someone else, which I'd like to discuss a little bit later oh, on that subject. Anyway. They, they, um, they were trying to start a winery industry in Idaho. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was called St. Chapelle, I think it is now. I'm pretty sure. And they do have a winery district there now, I know, because I was recently reading a book about the Oregon Trail. Okay. And a man and his brother made a trip in a wagon from Missouri to Oregon within the last few years and wrote about it, wrote, wrote a very good book. And they talked about the vineyards and wineries in uh, Idaho at that time, so I guess it succeeded. Mm-hmm. And um, that's just a side issue.
0: So you're planting a vineyard for the first time. Yes, okay. all right. Did you get anything else? Any other varietals?
1: Well, that leads to a lot of discussion.
0: Oh, okay. well, the
1: Chardonnay, by the way, was the clay Draper clone from California, mm, okay. which was, is ultimately not a success here because it's very late ripening. Mm-hmm. It is developed at UC Davis for California conditions. It makes a delicious wine, but it's so late ripening that it's questionable if it ever is ready. Mm-hmm. Uh, now at Torrey Moore, where they own that land now. Uh, Don Olson told me that they won some prizes recently from uh, uh, wine from that uh, uh, clone, the Draper clone. So it has had some uh, success, regardless of its ripening problems. So anyway, we 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 got our cable out there and we went down the line and so on. Mm-hmm. It all worked out pretty well, except I chose to have a, an avenue in the middle of the vineyard. And, um, unfortunately, by the time we got from the top down to the bottom of the vineyard, the two lines began to converge a little bit. It, it didn't quite work out as I had planned, but anyway, it didn't make that much difference. It was just a slight visual thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it was later planted. The, the avenue was later planted by the Argyle Winery, who leased it. So back to where we were. Um, We planted the vineyard. And then uh, the subject came up about living there. And I said, well, I, I, I can't work that vineyard. I can't do that unless we live there. And Donna Jean said, well, I don't like that idea very well. And let her tell you what her viewpoints are there.
0: Get her on camera for those. <laughs> what, what were your thoughts? Of, you know, moving a family to the vineyard.
1: Well, at one point I thought it was a pretty stupid idea. After we after we moved, uh-huh. because we moved in September. We started a house in spring, and then. We planned on moving in September and we sold our house in McMindle, which is still there on uh, Elmwood on Brockwood Hill. And we got the use of two uh, mobile homes, house trailers we'd call them before. Uh, And in one, I, Donna Jean, our daughter Carrie, and two dogs. We're living there and the next one adjoining was our daughter Claudia and she was a senior in high school and she took uh, required that entire trailer so it was it's four to one but it worked out and I thought several times at night lying awake there I thought why, the, why did I do this I'm not so sure this is a good idea it's not very comfortable and we had a nice house in McMinnville uh, we were at some disadvantage at this point, so it worked out. Anyway, um, in December of that year—74, was it? I think, 74. Two days before Christmas. Two days before Christmas. We told the building contractor, we have to be in that house, if nothing more than just the kitchen, and which we did. We moved into the kitchen, <laughs> and the rest of the house was still being worked on. And uh, our clothes were in the basement there. And were in uh, uh, cardboard boxes with hangers. But anyway, we got a there in Christmas of uh, 1974, I guess, was it?
0: Hmm. That's not too bad. Probably didn't seem like it at the time. but. <laughs>
1: and our son, Mike, and my nephew, Tim, put up a Christmas tree there, and the house has a very high uh, open area in the front, and the Christmas trees was huge. went way up there. Mm -hmm. So they had fun getting that Christmas tree. So anyway, when we built the house, I thought, well, I'm going to make wine here. So the lower part, the basement, was done in such a way that the ceilings were, I think, 12 feet high which required a lot of concrete. And by that time, we had poured that concrete. We'd spent a lot of money and didn't have much to show for it because there was so much concrete in there. But it worked out there all right. We had a nice little spot for making wine and we had floor drains and we had an exhaust fan in one wall to bring out the CO2 fumes as the wine was fermenting. And we made wine there for some years which uh, actually we bootlegged. We had carboys, five gallon carboys, and I'd fill those, I'd sell those to friends and acquaintances mm-hmm. who got a good buy. And I didn't go to jail. <laughs> <laughs> so it, uh, it was just all part of it. And I really enjoyed making that wine. But as time went on, I'm not so sure I thought that I want to do this because it's a lot of work and uh, it requires a lot of attention to detail and a lot of my time, while I was still working at a full-time job in McMindle and commuting back and forth, and also after we moved out here, I'd have to get up early in the morning and either prune or run the tractor and come home at night and run the tractor and spend my weekends doing that. And that was typical of a good many of the people that have gotten into the wine business at an early time. They they supported themselves by other jobs. Uh, David Led, of course, is a good example. His bookselling activities and Arthur Weber too, who was a books, a textbook salesman and and a publisher from Boston. So as time went by, I began to tire of the And in 1985, I retired from business in McMinnville. I'd been uh, commuting ever since, though. And I thought, well, maybe it's the time I just should sell this vineyard. Uh, I don't want to work too hard anymore. I've I've had plenty of uh, career, and why should I work hard anymore? Will you get me a glass of water, please? Would you like to take a break? We can pause? Oh, just a little water would be fine. There. So <clears throat> we did sell the, the, uh, the location, the building, the house, and the vineyard to Dr. Don Olson, who still owns the location there. He was working as a physician in Nevada at that time and didn't want to move up here. So he said, well, why don't you just live there for a year and I will give it to you rent free. Thank you. Which is all right with us. Gave us a chance to look around for a new home. And it took a long time to find a place. And uh, Donna Jean, my wife, was not so sure that it was a good spot even then when we moved. But anyway, we did. <laughs> it was a house that I liked that was an old style uh, a house that had bought, the parts that had been bought from Sears and Roebuck in 1916, was it? And it had been built at another location uh, called—and the location was called Copper Gold, which is over north of Newburgh. And that was a a famed farm at that time, the Copper Gold Farm. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So eventually, two engineers who were working at uh, Allen Fruit decided they were going to buy that house and move it over to the present location of uh, 2708 East Roberts Lane, north of Newburgh, just off of uh, Zimri Drive, close to where the Allison Inn & Spa is now there. And they reconstructed the house—well, they didn't reconstruct it, they renewed it. They, they uh, put new plumbing in and all that sort of thing. And uh, they almost lost it on—when on, they got it over there, they put it up on stilts and a big wind came over and it almost blew over. It's a huge house, so it would have made quite a crash. So we moved there in, uh, uh, let's see, 85, 86, I guess. Must have been 86. We sold 85, yes, it was 86, to 27080 Roberts Lane. It was a wonderful old house. It was. It's called a neo-colonial, I believe, is the style. And there are a few of those around here in New Bernet. One quite nice. So we lived there for quite a while, and I indulged my interest in landscape architecture, which had been an interest for some years. Uh, since we had lived in McMinnville, I planted a large garden there, and I thought, well, here's a good place to really uh, do the things I want to do. We had two acres of land, and we were able to spend all the money we wanted to spend, and, and some more, too. And that went on nicely. And then in, um, I think, 96, we decided, well, there again. We've done our thing here. It's time to move on. So we sold. Uh, we split it up in two pieces, two acres each, two acre lots, and uh, moved on from there. Uh, back to the Dundee Hills, and we built a house on Viewcrest up above us here, and then we. Uh, lived there until, I don't remember, do you remember? Eleven years ago. How long? Eleven. 11, Eleven, yes. And in the meantime, we lived in a house over here, near down the hill here. Well, the house was being built. This kind and, one? No. Well, it was, it was on, the, Dogwood. Then we moved into the Viewcrest House, and decided the house was not too too good for us because the main level was on the second floor, it had a beautiful view, but living on the second floor always walking up and down, it got to be a problem because we were aging and it wasn't very handy. So we sold that, and then 11 years ago, we sold that, and we moved over to Birch Street as another rental and built this house. So we've been here since uh, 2004. So you
0: really have been all over the Dundee Hill. We have been all over.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, we had fun. And as you you have commented, this is a nice house. It fits us well Mm -hmm. for two people. Mm -hmm. We have this level here and then we have a uh, another level below, and that's where my workroom is downstairs. So I have lots of space here, and Donna-Jean has space over in the corner of the house there and such as that.
0: Do you dabble anymore in wine or growing grapes still?
1: Well, I'll, I'll continue on that. Oh, okay. <clears throat> uh, after moving over to um, the house on Roberts Lane, or off Zimmer Drive, I found, even while I was doing landsaving that I I needed to get out and be around people more. So I applied for a job at the Rex Hill Winery, Mm -hmm. which had just gotten started. I think their first vintage was 83, which was a good year, by the way. And um, I was put to work in the tasting room there and worked there part-time for six years. And then I quit there for a couple of years and then worked a few months for, over at the uh, Benoit Winery, which is now Ann Amy, mm. over on the Mineral Springs Road. But they were, they were going to sell that place to uh, Robert Pamplin, and they left it. So I decided, well, I'm going to look around for another spot to work in the tasting room. And I will go back a few years as a preface to that. In 1985, when we were still at the vineyard, uh, Alan Holstein, who was the vineyard manager uh, for uh, Canutes and at that time, came to me and said, uh, you've got a nice spot for making wine there in your basement. And uh, there's a man named Rollin Souls who wants to try making wine here. He is an American, but he's been in uh, uh, Australia, working for an Australian company, Petaluma. And Petaluma has sent him to this area to uh, see if we couldn't make good sparkling wine here. So Rollin spent uh, a year looking around here. So anyway, he he came there and... um, he made his first wine there. We have a picture of that in one of those books. He and I uh, had a good time making wine in 85 and became well acquainted. In our
2: basement.
1: In our basement. So back to uh, my progression in the wine industry. In, 80, in 96, after having laid off of uh, Rex Hill for a while, Oh, by the way, one reason we moved up to the Eucrest area was because Paul Hart, who was the winery owner, Paul and his wife, Jan Jacobson, were going to make that a wine estate area. There was 10 acres, and they were gonna build a house and put a vineyard around each house. And you would have your own wine, and you get a sale for the rest of the grapes. Well, it's a good idea, and I think they've done it in California enough, but it turned out he couldn't handle it. It was just too much expense. And I think also it was a problem with the city and the county of uh, doing something so uh, revolutionary as having a wine estate around your house. So that didn't work out. So back to uh, Souls, we. I decided, well, I've known Rollin a long time. I don't want to take advantage of him, but I want to go back to work in the, in the wine industry. So I went in there and he put me to work, and that was 96, February of 96. And I continued working there until April of this year. April 17th was my last day at the Argyle Winery. And I've, I've seen a lot of things happen there, uh, which we'll discuss that later. So that's twenty-some years, I guess. And I'm no longer in the wine industry, and uh, uh, we had our day, and we've seen a lot of things. So uh, I guess that's about a summary of it. Anything else you—
2: That's quite a timeline. Yes, it is. You were going to mention the difference between the— society that we started out in, and
0: how the, the evolution to uh, the social. Yeah, the social word. So Donatini's question slash comment was commenting on the societal and social changes from when you started to now.
1: Those two words should be combined with a third word. Mm-hmm. Society, social, that is, society and or social economic and spiritual, which are the underlying words for where we are in the wine operations these days. They are significant terms that have created an interest in not only buying wine, but people wanting to move here and take part in so-called lifestyle. And I heard that term just a month ago, at a party up at uh, Torrey Moore Winery, we were invited there. Carrie and Donna Jean and I went up there for a party, uh, and we gave a talk to their wine club. And we met a man who worked in eastern in Spokane for a farm. Credit company. It's a government organization. And he said, Well, this is fine, I have a good job, but I want to move down here and live the wine lifestyle. I didn't say anything, but I thought, Well, there's more than one aspect of that style, too. It's, it's a broad sort of thing that you have to understand that it isn't just uh, hanging around and sipping wine from time to time. So, it uh, illustrates what I'm talking about of social, economic, and spiritual because there's a lot of spirituality. We don't think much about religion much anymore, but we talk about spirituality. We're spiritual people. We're not just religious people. We like to think that we have spiritual thoughts that are important to life and to existence in general. And we're taking advantage of those in in one way particularly, and that's the wine culture. It is something that attracts people. It has a back to nature. It's it's something that uh, is important to our psyche anymore because we want to be in touch with, uh, uh, what's the word, uh, organic. We want to live an organic life. Mm -hmm. You all understand that. Mm And that's what keeps the thing going. That's what makes it possible for all these wineries that have joined us here all over the hills and all over the adjoining hills and, uh, have made it the vital force And I don't remember how many wineries there must be—hundreds of them—and many, 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 many more vineyards. And that's another subject I'd like to mention too. That I found when we were in a vineyard place there and selling grapes or trying to sell them, it became very discouraging. There wasn't much of an opportunity for selling grapes. There were a few. Irie, Erath, uh, Hinman down uh, south of Eugene, and uh, Adelsheim, and Amity Wine, Myron Redford. Those were just about what there was to be for a a market. So the price wasn't very good. It was was hardly a, a living wage. And secondly, there was no guarantee we were going to get a good crop, and uh, it became obvious to me that the the vineyard people were a bunch of suckers. That is a crude term, but it's in my I think it's still true, and I've seen it happen just within the last few years, 1912 or 2012 and 13, especially are good examples of when uh, the crop is very scarce, and I know. A, a, a vineyard over here up in the hills that they got practically nothing for the crop, and what they did sell, they had to wait a long time to get their money so the wineries are the people who can survive. they can go up and down and they can they can uh, get grapes somewhere and uh, succeed. but the vineyard people they're dependent on every crop from year to year that's a typical farm story anyway it isn't just wines it's it's mm-hmm. It's farming in general. And vineyard operating is dirt farming, and which is not an insult to farming. It only means that you have to get your hands dirty. And you have to get cold in the winter when you get out there and prune those vines.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: When I was doing that, I got a good view of Mount Hood during the winter. It was nice and clear. And sometimes they lit out over the clouds, the low clouds or the low fog. A beautiful view of Mount Hood which was very inspiring, except I was a little bit tired, a little bit cold, and uh, I took it all in, though. So, anyway, that was the reason, one of the reasons we moved, too. So, I didn't want to leave the industry entirely, and as I say, I stayed with it for 19 years at uh, Argyle and six years elsewhere. Now speaking of wineries <clears throat> we are experiencing which was easy to predict if you knew anything about business business is not a static matter it has to be a growing vibrant activity or it fails and everybody in who's in who a businessman knows that so after um, David Lett took his wine to France in '75, was it? I think it was 1975. He went to a an exposition, or a judging. Uh, I guess it was in Paris. It was.
0: Yeah.
1: So, lo and behold, <laughs> here he was up towards the top.
0: Yeah, I think he was second.
1: Second, well, think about that, says Mr. Robert Douin, that can't be. There's a mistake here. We're going to do this again. Mm-hmm. So they did it again in another location. I guess they went to Burgundy, didn't they? You know that? Yes. They went to another location, and it must have been Burgundy. So what happened? it, it they went up at the top again. So that was the reason that, of course, we have Domain Drew in Oregon. Mm-hmm. He became sold. And, of course, they, they, they are doing a good job here. Next door to us are uh, Ashley and uh, um, Aaron Bell, who work there. Ashley is the tasting room manager, and Aaron is the uh, cellar master. So they've settled in nicely. So that was one example of people coming to us from other areas to take advantage of the, uh, what was happening in Oregon. So the, um, that wasn't the, that was just the beginning. Mm-hmm. And now we have examples of people coming from out of state to plant vineyards and or create a winery. We have uh, Kendall Jackson planting in the Dundee Hills. Of course, Kendall Jackson is top-notch in California. Mm-hmm. And then we have the uh, Joubert, uh, I think it is, from France. Penaluma. Well, that too, we'll get to that. Okay. I should mention that. Uh, anyway, another famous French winery. And uh, another development was the California uh, retirement system buying land, which you know about, I'm sure, east of, west of Carleton, planting vineyards in what I didn't think was a very good spot, close to the mountains, a low area. But evidently, I think they've sold it subsequently and uh, came out all right. Lots of activity over around Carleton now, we all know about that. Thanks to Ken Wright, and that brings up another subject of Ken Wright. I had experience with him. Uh, during the time that we were living up in the hills there during the period of a year, um, Alan Holstein had came to me and said, "There's a man named Ken Wright that I'd like to have you meet." He's living in um, the Monterey-Carmel area right now, making wine for the Talbot Thai Company in the hills there. And he wants to leave that area and come to Oregon. And uh, he, he needs some help uh, to get going. I said, well, okay, let's, let's talk to him. And I had a telephone conversation with him. And then uh, he eventually showed up at our house there uh, along with Carby Wright Souls, you know who she is, of uh, now uh, Rocco. That's another interplay of, of uh, Falcon Crest, was it? You remember that show? Did you ever see that show, Falcon Crest? So, anyway, um, Ken wanted to borrow some money from me and wanted me to be an investor, and uh, I said, well, what will it cost? So he figured it all out, and he said, eventually, $200,000. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I have the money, but I don't know whether I want to go into that money or not, so I decided not to. But I did selling my winemaking equipment, and I have a picture yet that shows in one of Kerry's books of a truck backed up to our winery, in which sits all of my winemaking equipment. And there's Ken Wright, Alan Holstein, and myself. Mm-hmm. And I went into the house and shed a tear. I thought, well, it was a good dream. Yeah. But there it goes, <laughs> bye-bye.
2: It was a hard party.
1: Yeah, it was a hard time.
0: Well, you've had incredible vision your entire time in the wine industry. You always seem to have your finger on the pulse. Where did that come from, that knowing? Did you just possess that?
1: I developed a motto, which I have taught my daughter Carrie. Have a vision, make the effort. Mm -hmm. And that's the only answer. And where that vision comes from, I don't know. That's genetic. I guess my dad was a very aggressive person. He started out uh, from nothing in uh, around Carleton, and he had built up a hay baling business. So At those those days, you could go around from farm to farm, set up a hay baler, and uh, do well. Uh, portable, a state—it's called the stationary baler fact that Baylor is still in existence over there at the Yamhill County Museum, south of McMinnville. Mm -hmm. So he got started in that, and he was considered uh, fairly well off from that. So he bought then the place in McMinnville and went from there and was very aggressive there. And that led to the original—eventually to what's now called the Winery District. And when he retired, my brother and I bought him out and enlarged the Winery District. But we learned from him that you, you, you develop an idea and you go for it, and I think that had a lot to do with it. Uh, I'm sure it did genetically. My great grandfather, who came when he was 18 or six, 17 or 18 in 1844 to Rickreol, was a very aggressive person too. And he started farming in Rickerall, of course, after moving around here and there. And he eventually was, the, according to my dad, the second highest taxpayer in Polk County, which in those days meant he had a lot of land and he made a lot of money. And he had a partnership in a bank in independence. And uh, not only that, he gave a lot of his land or sold it to his um, children. My father was born in in Rickerall, and other people were, and uh, they eventually moved to uh, Portland in 1900. And my dad always said that was the best thing that ever happened to me when we moved from Rickerall to Portland. Of course, Portland was a hot spot then, and uh, still is. So anyway, back to my great-grandfather, Joshua a hard worker and a determined person. So after getting rid of all this land, he would, uh, well, back to that, to Rickrow. The, the house that they lived in there is still there in Rickrow. It's still in good condition. Some people living there have, have maintained it. So eventually he got bored and he decided he was going to make another homestead. Mm-hmm. And he chose the Eagle Creek area, which is over by Estacada up in the hills there, and he started a new farm, and putting up buildings. And he was one day on a a wagon pulled by a horse, and they fell off, and it killed him. So that was the end of him. But the point that I'm making is, he was a determined person. And he, I guess he passed the genes on down to us.
0: Well, certainly to you. I recall your story earlier where you decided to believe in David Lett, and your brother was the one that was skeptical. Very skeptical. So, what was it about David Lett that you said, all right, this guy might know what he's doing?
1: Well, he was a convincing person. And uh, when he made his first wine in 1970, he made a, a one little error, one little, it was a big error. He made his wine in a room that was air conditioned. It was cooled, a cool room uh, used for turkeys originally. And uh, the wine turned out to be very light and pale. Mm-hmm. So he called it the Oregon Spring Wine. Have you heard that term? I have, yes. And he labeled it. And I, I have had some of that. As a matter of fact, I have, used to have wine from many wineries at that time subsequent to that, which I eventually gave to the Oregon Historical Society. Are you familiar with those?
0: Yes, I believe we visited them a couple of times. Yes, good.
1: Yeah. Uh, I wish I'd have saved them and given them to you at the time. I would have been… Yeah.
0: M- we were a little late to the scene. Yes. They're still in good
1: hands, though. Good. Well, anyway, insofar as David Lett, he was a a convincing person, but he had to be very persuasive, and his uh, book uh, sales experience helped him there in selling wine. So he went from place to place, and one of those places he went to was the Harris Wine Cellars in Portland on Northwest Eighteenth.
2: Pardon? Was it
1: 23rd? No, it was uh, it was down several blocks. It was owned by a man named Bert Harris, who uh, was unique in opening up a, a wine shop. Mm-hmm. It was all uh, European wine, of course. So uh, I went in there one day to see what he had for wine, and he began to tell me about this fool out there and. McMinnville, who was making wine, and he thought he could sell it. And he ridiculed Lett unmercifully. Uh, Bert was kind of a joker anyway. So I thought to myself, well, Bert, let's wait and see here. You'll find out. And he did find out. So, uh, so insofar as uh, Dave is concerned, He was a very, um, he had strong opinions. He had to have. Mm -hmm. And it's reminiscent to me of a man named Walt Disney who you might have seen the recent filming in OPB of Walt Disney. And I thought to myself about David Lett. Nobody was going to stand in his way. He may have run into some trouble and he was going to get the job done. And, of course, he did. He, I don't think, ever made a lot of money for various reasons. But he told me one day, he said, I still have to go out and visit the customers and sell wine. He said, I don't do it sitting here in the winery. I go out and I sell. And that's the way he made some money. He made enough money to buy a a, um, Morgan car. Do you know what a Morgan is? Well, it was like an MG. It was an English car built on a wooden chassis. But it was very, very, very uh, desirable for old car buffs. So he made enough money to have some uh, money for uh, luxuries that appealed to him. And I stayed acquainted with him for some time, until his death, actually. I'd see sometimes I'd see him in the uh, post office down here. He he had a post office boxer all the time. During that course of time, when I was working at Rex Hill, I was thinking also of our daughter Carrie and myself operating a um, tourist bus. And I thought, well, I need some recommendations to do this, to uh, act as a tour guide. So I went to David and I said, will you write a letter for me describing my experiences and my abilities? And will you give it to me so I can use it as a reference? And here is that letter, which I'm going to give to you today.
0: Oh, thank you. To whom it may concern... This letter concerns Jim McDaniel, who I first met in 1970. This was during the time that I was looking for a building to use as a winery for my first vintage. After meeting Jim through a mutual acquaintance and discussing with him my immediate needs, he volunteered to let me rent part of a building that he owned. This worked out successfully. Eventually, I purchased the entire facility and made it what it is today.
1: For (laughs) 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 $16,000. Another snort from my brother. What the hell are you trying to do there anyway? <laughs> <laughs> and that's the truth. <laughs> oh, yeah.
0: After Jim had been observing me make wine for two years, he became interested in the subject of vineyard management and wine production. In 1972, he purchased 15 acres in the Dundee Hills and began planting his own vineyard. He also planted a ten-acre vineyard in the Dundee Hills, which today is leased from Dr. John Bowers Two Rexhill Winery. By 1975, he had built a home on his property and was continuing the planting of more vines, eventually planting a total of three vineyards. During these years and following, he produced grapes from various wineries, including my own, and became a part of the early happenings in the Oregon wine community. In 1978, he began making wine at his home, an original vineyard property for himself and friends. He continued until 1985 when he sold the house and vineyard. In 1987, Jim began work at Rex Hill Winery as a member of the Tasting Room staff. At Rex Hill, he, was conducted, he has conducted winery tours, represented Rex Hill at various industry-related events in the Pacific Northwest, and performed various sales and public relation duties at the winery. During his 20 years of experience in the wine industry, Jim has gained a wide knowledge of the people and happenings in the Oregon wine country, and is well qualified to act as a tour guide in this area. David R. Lett.
1: So you can put that in the archives.
0: That's wonderful. So what happened? Did you and Carrie make the tourist business, or oh, other ventures presented Carrie. Well, <sighs> oh, I, I know the answer. What was okay, it? She wasn't, what? ask you what? the question instead? OK, we'll ask that later.
1: <laughs> well, I didn't really want to do it for myself. I wanted to do it for Carrie. And it just didn't work out. So anyway, I got a nice letter and uh, I also got a verbal comment from David Lett, which I treasure. When I was working at Rex Hill, I was sent over to an event over at the uh, Domain Druin Winery one day and Lett was there in a generous mood when we were talking. He said, you know, Jim, you would be in the wine business. He said, if it hadn't been for you, I wouldn't have succeeded because I wouldn't be able to make wine. I had no place to do it and I didn't have the money. So that was a, a, a little bit of an exuberant thing for him to do and it was not typical of what he would do. So I gave him a lot of credit for having a heart in, in the right place even though I was kind of a crotchety person, as time went by, as Papa Pino would be.
0: Well, you are the one that believed in him Yes. got him started. That's right. I'm glad he said that to you at least once.
1: I'm. I am too. Thank you. So those. That's. That's about my story. I don't know. Well, I have I, a
0: couple follow-up questions. All that's right. Okay. The first is. Getting started in growing grapes, I know you had David Lutt to ask questions of, but was there anywhere else that you went to to get support or gain knowledge in how to plant the grapes, when to know to harvest? Where does one go when you're the one starting (coughs) the wine industry in the area?
1: Oregon State University had a program, even then. An active program. Porter Lombard, Mm -hmm. who you must know, he's in the the, uh, wine block down here.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: He and others, Including, um... Corey, Charles,
0: Charles, Corey, and Dickie, right? You
1: well, not much from them. I bought vines from them. And that's why I guess I haven't discussed that very much. Um, so, uh... What was I saying? Well, you did go with
2: your uncles, your uncles who had had nurseries for years and years. There was, a, there was genetic knowledge there, too.
1: Now, that helped a lot. My mother's family owned a large nursery, ornamental and fruit trees, mm-hmm. starting in 1890 here. And as I was growing up, I heard a lot of talk about planting and trees and agriculture in general, family parties. And so I had some feeling for the subject of farming and planting and activities like that. Uh, and I enjoyed plant life. As I mentioned, I uh, did a lot of landscape uh, architectural work. In fact, I finished here at Arago landscaping that place until he destroyed it. So that was a, a thing that helped a lot just to, just to have the confidence of working with plant life.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It helped a lot. In fact, it was necessary. Now, back to the vines. Uh, and this is an old story about David, or uh, Charles Currie.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And who came first? Well, I guess that claims will be made forever on that. And there is document, well, not documentation, but there are plenty of things written. But anyway, when I was planting, uh, I became acquainted with Curry through, well, I don't know who. Anyway, uh, I contracted for some vines from him one year when I was still planting. And I gave him some money in advance because I had made enough money, I wanted to save on some income tax and uh, buy in advance to get a tax deduction for it, which I did. I gave him, I think maybe $5,000 maybe as much. And um, he was propagating plants at that time. So the following spring, when the time came for me to pick up my plants and put them in the ground, no plants his business had collapsed his buildings that he was using for his propagation purposes uh, on um, green cuttings had collapsed and he was virtually out of business and he and his wife surely stood there and looked at me and i looked at them and i thought "Well, oh, i'm gonna you're going to give me those plants. They're going to figure out somewhere or the other for my five grand. So there on the ground were a bunch of so-called plants with roots sticking out there. And the top cut off where they would take uh, cuttings to propagate
2: uh,
1: completed plants, ready to plant. And they said, well, we have these. You can take whatever you want, so what could you do? I took them and I planted them up here at the, what is now the Torrey Moor. And so they were the, some of the very first Kuri clones, so-called Kuri clone that were planted, and they're still in existence here. And Currie told me one time, and he said, I got those cuttings from Alsace and which, of course, you'll know more about that later, you probably already know now. And he called it the the uh, Bergheim clone. Mm-hmm. And I looked that up recently in a map in Alsace and I found where Bergheim actually exists. And I also found out that Bergheim clone is a is a Riesling, which I didn't know. So it is evidently a, a well established wine area as this a good share of the the uh, French Wine Department of uh, France. And so far as Curry is concerned, he—maybe this is not the subject, but I'm going to say it anyway—when he, he went out of business here on David Hill in Forest Grove area, he went to Portland, and as usual, he had some ideas. and he. Proceeded to start making wine on Southeast 8th or 9th, something like that, under the name of Cartwright Beer. His wife's maiden name was Cartwright. Well, Curry was not very careful about his wine making activities. He wasn't sanitary enough, especially with beer. You can't make any mistakes there and have good beer. So it just didn't sell very well. But he was the the original, the the pioneer for the craft beer industry in the state here, and other states too. So he had lots of ideas. But eventually that failed, and he went to California and was living in the Napa Valley at the head of the Napa Valley at um, Calistoga where the Calistoga Springs are. And he had a bicycle shop there, which uh, I guess he was making a living. So, he still was sensitive about bringing in that curry clone illegally, which he did in a backpack. But before that, when he was in the uh, Vine business, he sold some vines to, into California. And eventually that became a well known clone, the so called Curry clone.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And subsequently a group of people decided to uh, honor him at a dinner celebration and ask him to speak about that Curry clone. And he said, what clone do you mean? The curry clone. He said, I don't know anything about that. I can't, I can't tell you anything because I have no, in, no part of that. Well, he did. So finally he said, well, okay. If I don't get put in jail, I'll talk about it. So they had their dinner and, and Charlie got up and spoke and, Everybody had a good time. And it wasn't too much long after that that he became then an authority. He would tell all the other vineyard and winery people how to plant a vineyard and how to make wine. Wow. Now, the reason I know this, and I know it for a fact, is that when I was working at Argyle, there was a man named Walsh, who was a vineyard manager, would come in there once in a great while. and. Talk about California wines, and he told me that he told me that twice about Charles Curry and the Vic Curry clone. So that's another little point of human interest uh, mm-hmm. that takes part of the in this industry. And I want to finish, unless you have other questions. Do you have other questions?
0: I think we'll take a break and go to Donna Jean for a bit. Okay. So, if you want to do a a
1: wrap-up note. I touched on this before about what is happening to the wine business here. And two examples, one was Domaine Druin, Oregon, and the other was Argyle Winery, Mm -hmm. which came about through the presence of Roland Souls. And Rollin was never a heavy owner of Argyle. It was always uh, 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 Petaluma Winery. And that man's name was, uh, what was it? You remember his name? Uh,
2: uh, You mean from Petaluma, Australia? Um, um.
1: Brian Crozier. Yeah. And he was a, Cruiser was a a very determined person and a hard worker. He was here a few times and I met him and his wife. In fact, he planted a vineyard down by Lincoln. But eventually, the Lion Nathan Company, as it's called Lion in Australia now, approached Petaluma, Brian Crozer, with a buyout offer. What about
2: Karen Beer? Wasn't that in the middle of
1: that? Karen Beer is an owner of of the land. In fact, they are a very influential owner from Japan. And they eventually took over the Argyle Winery activities. And from there on out, it was just a matter of time before Raul and Soules decided he was going to get out of there. Uh, And he did, ultimately, by starting the Rocco Winery, he and Corby. And within the last two years, he hasn't worked there except as a consultant. And he still is hired as a consultant because he made Argyle and Sparkling Wine what it is and the leading sparkling wine operator, producer in not only Oregon, but I think in Washington and even in California. The sparkling wine from Oregon is unique. It's just the right sort of thing. So this is a typical example of what happens when outside interests get involved in what's happening here. And now we have all sorts of intermeshing uh, ownerships. Mm -hmm. This place down there at Fifth and the Highway, that little tasting room, is an example. Uh, And uh, there's a company in San Francisco that has invested in Wine by Joe, Mm -hmm. and they've invested in a number of places. So gradually, slowly but gradually, large companies are coming in and taking over the wine business. And that will lead to a change. But it's not bad entirely. There are, there are two or three large businesses that virtually control the wine business in many ways. Gallo and uh, Conondago in the east. and. Another factor is the distributors. Mm. They're gaining control, too. So it's a business activity, despite it being a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to live a few more years to see the sequels to that. So that's, that's my story.
0: Well, thank you very much, Jim, for the welcome. session of this.
1: Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast.